Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Back actually and speak more, as we'll see after Easter, God willing, about singleness and marriage in the remainder of chapter 7. But before he does all that, right here in the middle of the chapter, he breaks off his discussion about marriage and singleness to hear an enormous difference of life situations. There's all sorts of different life situations that Paul looks at in chapter 7. Paul says this, he says, verse 17, live there, stay there, occupy the space that you're in. Remain there, verse 20 and 24. Now this is very important, so listen carefully. What we've got here is not law. See, that principle doesn't mean you have to stay there and you must not change. See, this is not his general advice in life. You know, the single person we know is told that they may marry. The slave is encouraged to to gain their freedom if they can. This principle isn't to to limit people or society. This principle is to free us to live for Jesus where we are now. Without thinking that our real Christian life is only going to begin when we get somewhere different. Okay? Got that? It's really important. Now last week I said that many of us spend much of our time as looking over our shoulder Christians. Wishing we were somebody else. You know, if I had somebody else's life, if only I wasn't married, or if only I wasn't married to him or to her, then I'd certainly be a better Christian. And this category we've got this week, they expand out to include all of life. So we'll look at social status, and then we'll look at at jobs. You know, if only I had that job, then of course I would love for Jesus. You know, if only I had all that spare time that they've got, of course I would live for Jesus. So let's, let's have a look then at this, at this passage in more detail. I want you to note first that as Christians, we are called to contentment. Now look with me, if you would please, at our passage. And actually, before we, we dig into the, the detail, can I ask you just to cast your eye down through the verses that Mark read to us? And I want you to look out for the word call or called in the text. Have a look. You see it straight away there in verse 17, verse 18, and again in verse 20, notice. And then actually we see it twice in verse 22, and again finally in verse 24. So Paul is going to talk to us this evening about Christian contentment and about being content with our lot and vital to to gaining, if you like, that rare jewel of Christian contentment is understanding the call of God on our lives. And the modern Western world is prosperous beyond our wildest imaginations of any past age and yet we are plagued with with a nagging discontentment and restlessness, aren't we? Now, here in this part of of Sheffield, you know, it can feel like we have it all, can't it? You know, many people have said, since we arrived six months ago, where else would you want to live, Johnny? This is the best place in the whole... In fact, I had it this morning. I won't even mention who it was. This is the, the, the best place to live. And that may be true, but you still may not have the time to experience all the different things that you want to do here. 
It's that ubiquitous modern problem of too many options, too little time. See, we have been schooled not to be satisfied with our present lot, haven't we? There's always something bigger and better and sweeter just, just over there, just around the corner. It may be that job that we long for, the one that you know, the one that you want, the one that will give me that extra day off that I really crave. Or maybe it's retirement. I'm just working towards retirement and then I'll be able to do exactly what I really need to do. We aspire maybe for a, for a bigger home. Or maybe we sit here this evening and the truth is we have it all. We honestly do. We can honestly say we've got it all. And yet, we have this niggling sense that something is missing. There is a hollowness to our lives. The old saying that tells us to bloom wherever we are planted is almost incomprehensible in a society that generates restlessness. And of course, Let's not kid ourselves. That way of thinking often has tragic consequences upon us as Christians. Now, I came across an article this week, <clears throat> the Christian author writing about the effects of social, me social media in his life. And he says this. It'll come up on the screen. Let me read it to you. Sometimes I get jealous of your calling. And sometimes I confuse your calling with my calling. As I scroll through my newsfeed, I see you doing big, exciting things for God. Maybe you're doing missions. Maybe you're writing a book. Maybe you're leading an amazing Bible study at your church. Maybe your church is some crazy, cool new program. Meanwhile, I am at home doing small, seemingly unimportant things, taking kids to school and going to work and going to church on Sunday. Nothing big. Nothing that's going to get lots of likes and retweets. It's kind of depressing. I get jealous. I want your calling. I want to do those fun, amazing, big, fast things. I want big, now, cool things for God. Quiet is boring. Mundane seems lame. I feel pathetic and purposeless. Social media stretches me beyond my calling. It makes me want people and places and things that God has called you to and not me. Do you see the problem? Social media in this man's life was generating discontent. And then he quotes John Calvin. And I have to say, I found this actually really helpful. And I think it gets to the point of our passage. Here's Calvin. Let me read it to you. Each individual has his own living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post. So that he may not heedlessly wander throughout life. And then the author goes back and he, and he concludes with these words. Your calling isn't my calling. And if I try to take what you have, I will wander heedlessly throughout life. I'll leave the place of good, fruitful, productive work God has staked out for me and wander into wastelands instead. You know, that, I think, actually summarizes rather well Paul's message in these verses. See, for Paul, the answer to the discontentment that a culture of restlessness generates is bound up in, in, in his understanding of God's call upon our lives. Now, actually, I want you to notice this, that if you look at this passage, you'll see that there are not one calling, but two callings. 
Now, we've referenced all of the, the use of the word call or called in the verses. And in every case except one in this passage, it refers to God's special saving call in our lives through the gospel. So look, look at verse 22, for example. God called to faith in the Lord. So that's the first use of the word call. But if you look at verse 17, Paul uses the word call in a different way. And there you'll notice it refers not to God's saving, renewing, transforming call in the gospel, but here it refers to our unique, particular vocations in life. See that verse 17? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. It's not by accident that you are doing what you are doing and where you are doing it and who you are as you do it. God has assigned that, just as God called them. You see, we've been called by God to an assignment in life, a lot in life, as husbands or wives, fathers and mothers, children and siblings, doctors and teachers and lawyers and homemakers and carpenters and shopkeepers and so on, fill in the gap. God has given us in his providence a calling in life, a lot in life, a vocation in life. Now it's really important at this point that I pause. Because here I want to clarify something very significant. You see, there are situations that we may find ourselves in that are very clearly not our lot in life. Situations of abuse in its many and varied forms, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, See, that is not a place, whatever you have been told or mistaught in the past, that is not a place that where we should accept our lot. I would suggest to you this evening, quite the opposite, in fact. You see, the saving call of the gospel in these moments, that is what enables us to see that we are more precious than that. We are precious children of God, and we must not accept such treatment. But what I'm talking about here, rather, is about the more mundane, the sort of everyday humdrum, if you like, of, of challenging lots in our life that come just through the, just through the circumstances and, and situations we find ourselves in. And our dissatisfaction, our discontentment with our lives, very often results because we actually confuse these two callings. You see, when we, we root our identity in, in, in the vocational call of God that is focused, if you like, on him, then we are in a good place. But when we, when we get distracted and we, we focus our call rather on the kind of the assignment, the, the kind of particular calling around us on the, on the role and the, and the identity that we find ourselves in, that can lead to all sorts of, 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 of confusion. See, when we do that, when we, we place it on the kind of horizontal then we can place an unnecessary burden upon our jobs, on our expectations, on our experiences or desires for experiences that they were never meant to bear. See, when you look for your identity and your worth in your daily vocation, you will never be satisfied. But when you begin to understand, if you're a Christian, that your vertical identity is now rooted, in fact, in the saving, transforming call of redeeming grace in the gospel... Well, 
then you'll begin to see that the success or failure at work, the frustrations and inadequacies of being a parent or doing well in school or university, you know, keeping up with the brightest person in the class, you begin to see that those things simply cannot touch who you are in Christ. Quite frankly, they don't really matter. It's utterly liberating to find our identity in Christ. You see, your identity is not derived from your performance in your earthly vocation. Rather, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. Your security is elsewhere. Your identity is elsewhere in Him, in the vertical call of God through the gospel by which He has made you new. My dear brother, my dear sister, recognize this evening that your real, your true identity is rooted there. And you know, if you can begin to see that, to do that, you'll begin to find freedom from from the daily demands of this restless culture. Always looking for the next thing, for the next big trip. The next big experience. Instead, you'll be set free. And so Paul wants to set us free. That's what he's trying to do in this passage. To set us free from that kind of dissatisfaction that apparently was troubling the Corinthians and almost certainly is troubling many of us this evening. And he wants us to be content. And he wants to say to us, bloom where you are planted. And to help us drive it home, he's going to give us two case studies that were particularly pertinent in the Corinthian congregations, just to show us how this works. So let's see second then, that um, as Christians we are called to contentment in all situations. Now, let me read to you this, this wonderful quote from uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. I don't know if you've come across him, and he wrote this book, he's a Puritan writer, and he wrote this book called The Rare a jewel of Christian contentment. If you're about my age, when you were in university, you had a, you had a shelf full of Puritan paperbacks. Uh, I guarantee it was a real status symbol, and you never read any of them, but you had them all anyway, because Banner of Truth was flogging them off at, you know, it was incredibly cheap. Anyway, this is one of those that, um, and, and certainly in Naomi's case, my wife, uh, she has definitely read it, because she found this quote for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you, and it's a really good one. So thank you, Naomi. Sit in this, it's beautiful. So what do you get by being a believer? A Christian. What can you do by your faith? I can do this. I can in all states cast my care upon God. Cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. Therefore, when reason can go no higher, let faith get on the shoulders of reason and say, I see land, though reason cannot see it. I see good that will come out of all this evil. Isn't that fantastic? You know, there were two situations, especially where the Corinthians were attempting to to change, if you like, their earthly lot because they were discontent with it, where Paul summons them instead to to bloom where they are planted. And the first is there in verses 18 and 19 and has to do with the issue of circumcision. Look with me, please, at verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. It's very easy, isn't it, just to to read over that verse very, very quickly and think, well, there's nothing particularly radical in that, is there, Johnny? 
And yet, just remember how Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul was an observant Pharisee and an expert in the law. And his own circumcision had been for him a hugely important part of his religious and racial identity. And actually, we know, don't we, from the rest of, of the New Testament, that this was the biggest cause of looking over your shoulder at the time. There were preachers going from city to city explaining to Gentile Christians that if they wanted to be proper Christians, they should get circumcised. I don't want you to just think, just, just for a moment, of all our cultural practices that we have here in England. And to be honest with you, so many of them are, 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 are so recent, and quite frankly, they're made up. So I was trying to think, I haven't come up with very many, but one that, that I personally have really enjoyed over the years, it's not so popular today, is afternoon tea. What a civilized cultural practice that is. Another one, I'm, I'm sure it's pertinent for many here, uh, Yorkshire pudding with your roast dinner. Beautiful. It's great to be back in Yorkshire. But what Paul is talking about here is 2,000 years, 2,000 years it is since Abraham and his son Ishmael were first circumcised. This is not some sort of small uh, cultural practice. This is serious. And what is Paul going to, to be able to say uh, to that looking over the shoulder that the Gentiles may have been doing? Well, have a look at verse 19. You might find it quite surprising. And I want you to try and, and, and try and hear this as an observant Jewish man or woman would hear it. Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keep God's commands is what counts. Now just think what that sounds like if you were a Gentile Christian with your face pressed against the glass shot window wishing you could come in. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Now here's a, a category distinction that had mattered hugely for 2,000 years. And Paul radically disintegrates it in three words. Circumcision is nothing. The difference it makes is actually nothing. You are radically the same. You may think that you'd be a better Christian if you'd been brought up Jewish, but you weren't. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Remain as you are and get on and live as a believer. You know, very quickly, I, just, I want to say to you, I think that is a word for our times. Don't you agree? See, we are so easily preoccupied with whether or not his face fits into this group. We can do it with school. We can do it in social settings. Whether or not we fit into that particular social group or not, or that class system that we apply to, we aspire to. You know, who's in and who's out? It's a constant question all the way through our lives, from school right through university and, and, and through our whole kind of working lives at times. We focus, you see, far too much on making our lifestyles correspond to the expectations of our chosen social group. And we can be driven by those things. And Paul is saying here that externals like that aren't what really counts. See, if you've been called by God into new life through the gospel, what really counts is living out the new life and your new identity that God has given you in a way that delights and pleases him. And the Corinthians, they were in danger, you see, of, of defining themselves, of, of locating their identity in whether or not they had the right badges or social belonging. They were in danger of, of rooting their identity and their worth in their earthly vocations, their earthly lots. Now, in the university 
that they attended or which part of town they lived in. But what really matters is locating their identity in Christ. Okay, that's circumcision. Let's have a look then, the second one. And we'll see the second case study. Again, Paul is applying this same principle. Look down there at verses 21 through 23 and you'll see it. And this time Paul tackles slavery. Verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Isn't that an extraordinary thing for Paul to say to us, to say to his readers? See what he's doing there? He's applying the same logic. So the division between slave and free is the same division that he has made between Jew and Gentile and between single and married. And I think, to our ears, that sounds like Paul is defending slavery, doesn't it? And if we stopped at this point, I would understand if people chose to leave the room in horror. So let me clarify, if I may, one or two things about slavery. And slavery in the Bible as opposed to the rest of world history. And we need to remember, first of all, that slavery in Paul's day is not about race. See, we often get sidetracked and confused when we read about slavery in the Bible because we tend to read back into it the institution of slavery that was a particular problem in the American South, largely run out of these British Isles for 300 years. The product of race-based prejudice where an entire people were stolen from their homeland in Africa and forced into the most demeaning servitude and viewed as mere property. But that's not really what slavery was in Paul's day at all. Certainly, some slaves had very difficult lives and circumstances, but others were skilled, professionals, educators, businessmen and women. They were often salaried and so could eventually buy themselves into freedom or could be set free by others. You could be made a slave by, as punishment for a criminal act. Although, actually, many people would, would sell themselves into slavery in order to deal with a particular financial problem. If they got themselves into debt, then they'd sell themselves to, to satisfy that debt. And to slavery here, Paul actually does the same radical disintegration that he had done with circumcision. When he says, don't let it trouble you. Now, by that, it doesn't mean Paul is ignorant of the condition of slaves in his world. His whole point here is that these are bad circumstances. Circumstances that you want to change. And that is why this one of all the pairs in the chapter, this is the only one with a command to change if you can. Do you see that? Verse 21. Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom... Do so. You remember, Paul writes to the slave owner in the epistle Philemon, and he writes about this slave Onesimus. And you remember how he refers to him? As my son, and one who is my very heart. So don't let it trouble you. It's not asking you to pretend that the injustice and the conditions don't hurt. It's saying, don't let it tell you who you are. Don't let it trouble your soul. 
Don't read from it how valuable you are to God and how much your life is worth to Jesus. So this here is radical disintegration of the most profound social division in any age in history. Verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord. And let's pause and ask who she really is. Is the Lord's freed person. I find myself wanting to say amen. And there are echoes there and overtones of being the freed person, if you like, of the Roman emperor. So this is the person that's being set free. Most valued citizen of the emperor. Set free with honor and wealth. That is who you are. And then verse 22 goes on. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Effectively saying, anybody in this room who trusts Christ is a slave. Now, I want you to imagine that truth bomb dropping in the entirely status-driven church there in Corinth. They've got the mayor, the judge, and the aristocrat. And here we have, you're all slaves like the rest of us in this room. And the lowest status slave who has just managed to, to get to church using that only precious hour for themselves away from the, the hard labor, they are freed by the emperor of the universe, like the rest of us in this room. Well, let me, let me quickly then try and just draw all this together. I'm mindful that we've got a, a, a question panel. So let me, let me try and explain. Uh, first of all, why, why is Paul using slavery here? Why is it Paul reaches, I suppose, for the most disadvantaged and most despised in, the, in his culture in order to make his point? And you see what he's done? You see, what we've got here is a, an infinite ceiling, isn't it? See, even if your situation is as bad as it possibly could be, what he is saying here is true even for the slaves in the Roman mines. And it's the same truth we met in chapter 6. And it is a glorious truth. Verse 23 here. You were bought at a price. Whatever your situation, whatever is difficult, whatever is terrible about your situation, Jesus wanted you. He wanted you. Jesus died in order to possess you. You are of infinite value to him. Even if Someone around you or the world around screams at you that you are not. See, no one, no one in this room, no one in any other room, in any number of plush, entitled rooms in the world, no one is of higher value than you to God if you are a Christian. No one. See, that is the power of a God-given identity. See, the, late, the slave master says that somebody's nothing, just a piece of property to them. And God says that is not true. And God is the creator of reality. And if the creator, creator of reality says you have value, then you do. And again, lots of, of human life now is about trying to, to create an identity for ourselves. But a God-given identity is powerful and pure and true forever and fashioned by the one who died and gives us that identity. 
So instead of, of wishing we could start somewhere else, instead of looking over our shoulder and thinking, if only I was like them or I had what they had, Paul says to each one of us this evening, start from here and live as the Lord's freed person in the situation that you find yourselves in. Okay, let me just make a, a, a couple of, of, of suggestions and conclusions. Just a few thoughts about contentment in response to some of the questions uh, that, I've, uh, that I've been looking at this week. Now, my thoughts immediately turn to the person who is asking, what if I am single but open to marriage? To what extent should I invest energy and time in seeking a relationship? That's a good question. And let me say to you, that person, doing either of these things. But I want you to, to, as you're thinking about that question, to, to do so with these verses open in front of you. Please don't wait to be in a relationship to start living. Surely we want to live for Jesus to the best of our ability in Christ here and now. We want to find our identity in Christ. And let me say also the same is true for our vocations. You know, we can spend, can't we, an inordinate amount of time of life pursuing the next step in our career. And again, we just need, we just need to watch our hearts, I would suggest. Now, how much can you take of that and still be content and love Jesus? I want to say also to us, we can do the same with our search for experience. You know, there's a certain contentment, I think, here in Sheffield. You know, we've sort of arrived. we found the optimum place to live. And so we, but we're looking. We're looking for experiences and we can really get distracted by them. You know, whether it's the, the next trip to here or, or on the next sort of, Whatever it is, climbing, rock climbing, bouldering, I don't know. There's almost so many things to do. But we've got to be really careful that that, that doesn't become our identity and we don't, we, we don't lose a sense if we're not able to do that next half marathon or whatever it is. You know, you're a super fit church, way fitter than me. I can't even get up and down the hills on my bike. It's totally intimidating. There's no identity for me in that. But there may well be for you. Be careful. Terribly destructive. Particularly if it begins to affect our commitment to church. Be careful. And I'm not saying in any of that that any of that's wrong. Actually, it's, it's very healthy. We talked about the body. So look after your body, but just keep it in perspective, I guess. So look, what Paul is, what is he saying to us tonight? Well, really he's saying your restless heart will always be restless. That's the point, until it finds its rest in God. And I'm sure we've come across Augustine's prayer, but let me just read it to you again. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless. Lord, till they find their rest in thee. Restless hearts. You will always be restless until you'll find your rest in Jesus Christ. And what did he say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Contentment at last to bloom where we are planted because we are really not a function of what we do, but who God has made us in Jesus Christ. So may the Lord, this is my prayer for us as we come up to Easter. May the Lord help us to turn to him, help us to find true freedom. He gives us from the slavery of the expectations of our peers to find true freedom that comes from knowing that our identity is secure in our Redeemer's hands. That's my prayer for us. Well, let me pray very quickly before Steph's going to pop back up. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Uh, we're conscious again, Father, that we, um, we're limited and finite in our understanding of it. But we do pray that you would bring truth to us this evening, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would reach into those parts of our lives where we just need, you to, need to hear your voice. Speak to us, we ask, in your precious name. Amen.